Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Hebrews, not chapter 11, but chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And today we're going to look at this passage for the race that is marked out for us. We are in a race as believers of Jesus Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Hebrews chapter 12. We'll look at the first four verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we come to a point in the service where you speak to us, we pray that we would be like Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant listens or your servant hears. And we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this word will open up our hearts, give light to the eyes of our understanding, move us to, to recognize that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we pray that we may see Jesus in him only. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've graduated from chapter 11 and we're in chapter 12, but chapter 12, the author can't let it go because he says, therefore. And anytime the Bible says, therefore, you have to ask the question, what is the there, therefore? And it is there for a summary. He's looking back at chapter 11. And all of those people he mentioned in chapter 11 who endured and stood fast and persevered by faith, they were great examples to us of how God works in the lives of his people to enable them to persevere through exceedingly, sometimes almost impossible odds and difficult times. And so we've seen that the author brought that to the mind of his little church, by the way, which is a suffering church, which is a struggling church. They're under a great deal of persecution and hardship, and they are financially strapped, and they've been suffering an awful lot of things you and I would not want to suffer. And they are asking themselves the question, where is God in all of this? What's happened? Why are the evil prospering? And why are such bad things happening to us who are your children? And the writer to the Hebrews is showing them in chapter 11 all of those Christians and their resources and that they can face life in the same way as all of those Old Testament luminaries did through faith. 
We've only looked at a handful of those in chapter 11. But in chapter 12, we come to the final case. And that final case will be Jesus himself. He turns the camera now away from all of those Old Testament saints who are now in heaven, who are in this great Colosseum, who are witnessing to us the reality of God's preserving them as they persevered, and who are watching us and all of those Hebrew chapter 11 saints and the saints that have gone before us that have died or in the presence of Jesus are, as it were, sitting in the Colosseum of heaven, looking down and encouraging us, praying, as it were, for us, and, and saying, boy, keep it up, keep on, persevere, stay with it. But he points us ultimately to the one that is always ultimate, and that is Jesus himself. And so we're going to see by looking at what he suffered and how he triumphed, we can gain stamina and strength to run the race. But what does it mean that life is a race? We get that by the first metaphor that's used in these opening four verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Even down in verse 11, it says, the race has been marked out for us. Now, the word for race in the original language is the word agon. Now, what word in English do you think we get from the word agon? Right, agony. And so we're in agony. We're, we're in a race that is marked out for us, and it is an agony. We're not some poor slobs over here who happen to have their life lot in life to suffer. No, we are in an agonizing struggle. Life is an agonizing struggle, and interestingly enough, the phrase agonizing struggle can mean a race, but it also can mean something else. It can mean a wrestling match or a contest. If you go down to verse 4 where it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, it probably does mean that you haven't suffered persecution to the point where you have been asked to die for your faith. It's just as possible that there's a double meaning here that the race that is being discussed or the metaphor that's being brought to bear here is not merely a race but what is called the pentathlon. Now if you know Greek, you know penta is what? Five. You didn't know you knew Greek, did you? Penta is five. Uh, Pentagon has how many sides? Five. Somebody would know here. Five sides. And so, it's the pentathlon. And a couple of uh, commentators I read, had, they were pretty interesting about this. Uh, the pentathlon was the ultimate race. It was the climax of the Olympics. And the pentathlon had five events. It wasn't just running. It was more than that. They had to jump. They had to throw the discus, they had to throw the javelin, which is like a spear, but the climax of the pentathlon was kind of a wrestling match. Not quite like the ones we used to know. I remember the day my dad told me that professional wrestling was fake. I mean, that was devastating to me as a little boy. I said, really? What about all the blood? He said, well, they can fake that. It's fake, son. Get a brain. It's fake. But this kind of wrestling was not fake. It was a struggle. 
I don't know how many of you have ever done wrestling as a sport, not professional wrestling, faking. Uh, I've always said tele-evangelists were the professional wrestlers of Christianity. But, but it, is, it is wrestling. And what's odd about it, when the combatants would wrestle on the back of their hands, they had very hard leather that protected your hand but disfigured your opponent. If you slugged him with it, you'd usually draw blood. Therefore, let's look at this cheerful metaphor for the Christian life. Because it's not that cheerful, is it? It isn't just a marathon, though it is a marathon. Life is an agonizing struggle. It is a regimen of difficulties. In fact, and I hope, I hope totally to burst your health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here, even as he continues in this passage, he said, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The word for train there is gymnazo, from which we get our word gymnasium. So this thing is full of sports metaphors. This is simply saying that when the difficulties of life overwhelm us, and often they do, when troubles overwhelm us, tragedies overwhelm us um, that we can we can persevere when everything seems out, out of control because our plan uh, isn't working doesn't mean that there is no plan at all there's God's plan when our plan isn't working and if you use the metaphor for the difficulties of life it is a form of athletic training it is a pentathlon and if you understand like it like that, what do you come to? What do you understand? Well, I have a quote here by John Newton that I both love and hate. I think he wrote, did he write How Sweet the Name of Jesus? I believe he did. I'm not sure. I thought he wrote the words to that, that we just sang. But Newton says this, I both love it and I hate it. Everything is necessary that he sins. Everything is necessary that he sins, nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Think about that for a moment. Whatever is in your life has been sent. And whatever hasn't come into your life that you really want, he withholds. That's a tough, tough statement. It is almost inappropriate to say this to somebody who's undergoing severe suffering because it's almost like torture so he's saying everything that comes into your life is necessary nothing can be necessary that doesn't come into your life and it is a hard saying uh, especially when you're in the midst of a horrible tragedy but there's more than one perspective in the bible on suffering they're complementary but they're different for example here's another perspective that says evil and suffering in this world god hates and he does hate it he hates evil and suffering. He didn't create evil and suffering in the world. Look at the Garden of Eden. That's the world he created. The world he created became the way it is now because of the way we behaved in the garden. And we brought evil and suffering into the world. And he's going to incredible lengths to rid this world of every evil and suffering we see and know. When Jesus Christ stood before the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, he grieved. He let out a loud uh, groan. 
He didn't say, well, you know, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. No, he did not say that. He bellowed. He wept. He was angry. The Lord was angry at death. He was angry at suffering. And that's a very important perspective. If you're going to be able to handle life, if you don't have this perspective, along with Newton's perspective, you're going to have a very hard time. Exercise is necessary for us in the Christian life. It is necessary. And suffering is necessary. And let's just look at the physical realm for a second. Your doctor is going to tell you, especially as you grow older, that there are going to be certain things you're going to have to do if you want to live a good life and a long life, as much as, as is within your power. You're not going to have a healthy life unless you're willing to exert yourself, unless you're willing to groan and sweat. You will not be able to do the normal. Your body will not be able to perform daily normal exertions unless sometimes there are extraordinary exertions, and these are called exercises. You all know about exercise, I'm sure. Do you know what exercise is? Do you know what a barbell is, often called a dumbbell? Do you know what a treadmill is, an elliptical, stairmaster? It's taking a muscle and making it hard for it to do its job. That's what those do. And exercise is opposition. Doing something to oppose the way your body works actually puts stress on your body. And unless that happens, you're going to be flabby and die young. At least that's what my doctor told me. And he said pretty quickly. Now that's exercise. Therefore, just as physical exertion, physical pain, actually the pain of training is absolutely necessary for you to have health. So there's a sense in which everything is necessary that God sends into our lives. Or put another way, our faith will never grow if it's not tested. Your commitment will never grow unless it's threatened. Your patience will never grow unless it's taxed. You know, God give me patience right now, we often say. Your compassion will never grow unless it's tapped. That's how God does it. Your courage will never grow unless it's challenged. And it will be. The first thing we learn from this athletic metaphor and the difficulties of life are in some way absolutely necessary. Suffering is necessary. You will be a shallow, immature person without it. Secondly, we want to learn something very important, but before I do, I remember this story. There was a great pastor. He was in his 80s, and so he was retired. And so one of his friends said, I want you to come to church with me Sunday. He said, because this woman is going to come and sing, and she's only about 23 years old. He said, but she sings like an angel. I, I sense the presence of God when she sings. And uh, he said, so please come just for that. And he said, oh, I'll be happy to. I'll go with you. And so he came, and the girl sang, and she was flawless. I mean, she made no mistakes. Everything that came out of her mouth was a thing of beauty, and people were awed by it all. And on their way out, the man turned to his pastor friend. He said, well, that was beautiful, wasn't it? He said, what did you think? 
He said, it'll be a lot better when she suffered a lot. Isn't that something? Isn't that remarkable? It'll be much better after she's lived a while and suffered a lot. Why? Because there's some things that we're never going to get. Some graces that are never going to be developed unless we go through this paradox. And it is a paradox. In the gym, when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what I mean? Let's say I'm doing bicep curls. I actually do these, bicep curls. And if you do bicep curls, um, what happens to you is the more you do them, the weaker you feel. At least that's true for me. I'm assuming it's true for the human race because I don't see people doing them perpetually. Uh, eventually you run out, right? You're doing your bicep curls and you get weaker. Your biceps don't feel like they're getting stronger and stronger. They feel like they're getting weaker and weaker. And with every curl, they feel like they're becoming more and more like spaghetti or pasta. The weaker you feel you're getting, the stronger you're getting in reality. And that's how exercise works. And if you want to run the race, according to Hebrews, if you learn endurance, if you learn humility, if you learn the things we're about to look at here, in other words, if you meet the troubles of life in the right way, as you're going through suffering, you'll feel like, this is how you will feel, you will feel like you're getting weaker and weaker, your patience is getting shorter, your courage is getting weaker. You won't feel like you're getting stronger, stronger, but you are. You are. And that's very important. It's a very illuminating metaphor. Life is a race. It's a pentathlon. Life with its difficulties is an agonizing struggle, and yet there is a plan to it. It is redemptive. And there's one other thing I think that's incredibly important to know. Expectations are everything. Half or more than half of the pain we experience when we see difficulties happen isn't due to the difficulties. It's due to our shock, our confusion, and our self-pity over the fact that it's happening, happening to us. Half the pain isn't from the event, it's from your inability to process, largely because you have unrealistic expectations. For example, I had a brother that had a number of surgeries, but I remember when he had his first brain surgery. And I went to the hospital to visit him, and I let my mom know I was coming, my dad to know I was coming, and so when I got up in the hallway and started toward the room, I saw my dad peep out, and then he walked up to me in the hallway and he stopped me, and he said, your brother, Sandy, is not going to look like your brother, Sandy. So number one, he's got a shaved head. Number two, he's got tubes coming in and out of him. He said, number three, there's a little blood here and there. He said, number four, he just went on and on. With the, I almost turned around and ran away. He said, your brother is not going to look like your brother. He's got a big scar, big patch on his head. Uh, he's sometimes green, sometimes pale. Um, he's not going to smell great. <laughs> you know, the guy's been through brain surgery. And uh, he'll be cold when you touch him. And he will look awful. He will look awful. And I just wanted to prepare you for that when you go in. 
And so I'm listening, and I'm going, okay, 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 let me in. Let's get this over with. And after being prepared, I walk in, and you know, it wasn't nearly as bad as my father said. Uh, I thought he was playing a trick on me. It was bad, but it wasn't so bad. Why? Because he adjusted my expectations. Everything has to do with preparation. George McDonald has a great saying where he says, Every difficult, everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. And that's very intriguing. He says, if suffering comes into your life and you just melt down, if suffering comes into your life and you just freak out, it is because you had a theory of life that was inadequate and you didn't really embrace reality yet. Though suffering will hurt, and it will hurt, and you're going to scream, you won't get away from that. If you can enlarge your theory of life through suffering, then you'll be able to become a person who is a person of greatness. A person who's able to face things. What do I mean by a theory of life? It's very simple. What is the meaning of life for you? What are you living for? What is the energizing principle? What is it that you really do live for? Don't tell me what you're supposed to say. What are you really living for? If you're an average American, what you're really living for is to maximize your happiness and comfort now. That is your theory of life. That's your theory of life. Most Americans say, I'm living to maximize. I don't know where I came from. I don't know where I'm going. I maximize my happiness and comfort now. You do realize that suffering will destroy you because it will destroy your meaning for life. Your very reason for live, living is not to suffer. But suffering is inevitable, and we have to enlarge our theory of life to be able to handle reality. If suffering that cannot be born reveals structural flaws in our theory of life, we need a new one. Hebrews says, get this perspective. You need this perspective. It doesn't mean you won't suffer, it doesn't mean you won't scream, but it means you'll be able to stand and you'll be able to endure. That's as real as I can make it. Now why, what is to be our focus in the race? We've talked about the fact that our life is a race. And now we're going to talk about our focus in the race. As soon as I can find point number two. So bear with me. Somebody come up here and steal it from me when I didn't see it. Here it is. Our focus in the race. What are we to focus upon in this life that I've just been talking about where we're running a pentathlon, we're struggling, it's an agonizing race, there has to be a focus. There has to be something that we look at it that's beyond our moment. And the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who endured. And that's what he's saying at this point. It's something very easy to miss, but tremendously fundamental. It is fundamental. In this little phrase, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, he is saying the way you handle the difficulties of life, the suffering, the affliction, whether you sink or whether you're keeping it up depends on what you're fixing your mind on. 
In fact, the Greek word that's used here is kind of a negative word. Many people said it should be translated, look away to Jesus. But what the writer is saying is you're sinking because of what you're looking at. Stop looking at that and look at this. You're sinking because of what you fixed your mind on. In other words, what has really captured your heart and your imagination? We can get very literal about this. Your imagination is that which fills your mind with pictures. Remember when Peter walked on the water. He got out of the boat. Jesus told him to get out of the boat. And he starts walking on the water. And it's amazing and astounding. And then Peter begins to do what? He looks around at the waves. And he probably says, I can't believe it. I am walking on water. And he's probably thrilled. And so he looks around and he starts sinking. Why? Because he took his eyes off whom? Jesus. And as simple as that sounds, that is exactly what the author is talking about. When you go through an experience that we're talking about here, what are you thinking about? What are you imagining? What are you looking at? You may say, yeah, I know Jesus is God, and I know he suffered for me, and you know that sort of abstractly, but in your mind you're looking at all these awful, tragic, horrible scenarios you're spinning out in your imagination about what could happen to you. What we say and what I tend to say is, have Jesus on your audio, that is what you're listening to, but have your future on video. That is, in your imagination, as you look at Jesus. In other words, you fixed your mind, and you're dwelling on these things. And the Hebrew writer says it very categorically. If you're sinking, if you're going under, how you deal with your troubles is a function of what you have fixed your mind on. And he makes a very categorical statement. If you contemplate Jesus enduring, you will be able to endure. So he tells us to focus on that. If you're not enduring, if you're not contemplating his endurance, then you're going to sink. He says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Look away, Jesus. What are you looking at? You look at him, look at him, look at him. If you're sinking, it's because you're not doing that. That's the principle to understand here. You will deal with your troubles as long as you have the proper focus of your heart. It doesn't just say to look at Jesus in general, though. Many people will say, yeah, I'm facing a tremendous disaster in my life. I'm facing tremendous tragedy, and I know I'm sinking. I'm falling apart here. I'm coming apart at the seams. Nothing seems to happen, Pastor. I go to church every Sunday. I pray every day. But he doesn't say, look away to Jesus any old way. It doesn't say to look to Jesus in any particular way. It says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. There's so many translations. Let me see what founder and perfecter is what the ESV says. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is you must look at Jesus as this. You must understand him as this. And if you don't understand him as this, you're going to sink. And that's why you will sink. You can't just look at Jesus any old way. You have to understand what it means for him to be the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that's very important. 
The writer of Hebrews is not simply saying you're sinking because you're not looking at Jesus. He says you're sinking because you're not understanding what it means for him to be the founder and perfecter of our faith. There are some translations that say the pioneer and perfecter, the author and the finisher. The reason why it's so hard to translate this phrase is because there are, these are unbelievably deep and unusual words. So you have to spend a little bit of time thinking about them if you're going to understand them, and here's what they mean. First of all, the key word in the original language is archegos. Archegos. Now, that doesn't do much for you, I know. But the best translation of that word would be champion. Champion. We're not just talking about a champion boxer. We're not talking about a champion football player because this word arch. Agos, think about it, that's how you pronounce it in Greek, is actually the word arch ego. Did you get that? Arch ego. We all know what ego is, don't we? In the old Greek and Roman myths, myths a champion was a very specific person. He was your arch ego. He was a man of great power who would stand in and fight your battles for you. A person would stand forth as a champion in two kinds of ways. Imagine some kind of villain, some kind of giant, some kind of warrior has taken people into hostage, let's say. In other words, you've got a hostage taker. These people are powerless before this villain. So Hercules, or somebody like him, stands forth as a champion. We like those stories. We like champions. And there are two ways that man could be the arch ego in these old myths. One is he could stand in and take the arrows and the darts and the uh, poison or the dragon or whatever the villain was, enabling the hostages to escape. In other words, he would be the arch ego. He would stand in their place. He would stand as a substitute of all their fiery darts and all the poison, all the fury of the dragon, and the great villain would come down on him instead of him, them, and they would be free. The other way a ch champion could stand forth is that a champion could challenge the villain to mortal combat. In that sense, the champion would be uh, in the place of hostages because the champion had this great power. He had great muscles. He had great courage. If he lost, they lost. But if he triumphed over the villain, they triumphed, kind of like David and Goliath. Yes, they triumphed over the great dragon, over the great villain, over the great behemoth, or whatever. Now, if you're a hostage and you're a 90-pound weakling, you triumph over the great dragon. Why? Because your champion has. He's your arch ego. He stands in for you in your place. The Bible says that is what Jesus is to us. You say, okay, which way is Jesus this to us? On the cross, he stood in. He took the punishment we deserved and all of the poison and all of the wrath and all of the anger and all of the punishment of the death and of hell and that should have fallen on us because we're sinners, fell on him, and now there's none left for us. He's our arch ego. He's our substitute. He's our champion. 
in that we are united with him by faith. We are free from the guilt of our sins as if we had suffered ourselves. Not only that, he also came and he lived a perfect life. In other words, he stood forth against all the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He did everything we're supposed to do. He loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as himself. And when we go out and sing, yes, I should love God, I should love my neighbor, but we go under because we can't face temptations, we can't face pressure, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they always defeat us, but not our champion. When you believe in Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes yours. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness, which means... God gives it to you. If you are a Christian, all of the love and honor he would give his son, he loves you as much as if you had done all the wonderful deeds of love and courage here, as if you were the one who said, not my will, but thine be done, as if you had lived in an incredible record of faithfulness. In other words, Jesus Christ is your archegos, your arch ego. You are perfect in him. And that's huge I cannot tell you how huge that is shall I wax eloquent a little further okay that's all it takes is one person just one you know it's, it's amazing when you think of what Jesus has done on our behalf. But I want to get to the third point, and I will get to the third point. Our motivation for the race. What is it that motivates us to run the race? Because it's a tough race. It's a hard race. And where do we get the endurance? Where do we, where do we go to get it? And where do I get the motivation to run this difficult race? Well, one way is by fixing my eyes upon Jesus, who he is and what he's done as my arch egos, my arch ego, my champion. And as I look at him and focus upon that, then I'm freed from my doubt and fear and um, inertness, and I'm energized. But how do we get the motivation to run the race well first of all he tells us that we need to remove from ourselves everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles what's he talking about here i almost referred to it already but one of the great things about gym clothes if you're going to the gym (laughs) and you're going to work out You don't wear suits, and ladies don't wear dresses. You don't wear high heels. You don't wear suits and dresses and high heels. Why? Because it hides what you really look like. You look okay, but you get into gym clothes. Not too many people look very good in gym clothes. You walk in there, you look in the mirror, and you realize this is why I'm in the gym. Because it shows right up. The gym always has a, uh, shows us what's wrong in a way that, you know, we dress up and go out because we don't want people to see the things that we need to be working on. 
You don't even want to see him yourself. And when suffering comes, instead of looking right away to God, why are you letting this happen? Instead of looking at your circumstances, a lot of people say, well, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God. I even remember somebody who broke his leg and he didn't get into med school, but he met a nurse in the hospital, and now they're happily married. Maybe something good's going to come out of this. No, 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 no. Remember. You look at Jesus. Suffering will always bring out the worst in you, just like the gymnasiums. Always shows us what's wrong. The important thing you can possibly do in the midst of suffering is to say, Lord, what do you want to work on? What should I be working on? Instead of looking at your circumstances, looking around, trying to guess what God is doing or supposed to be happening, look at yourself and say, is it my cowardness? Is it my selfishness? Is it my pride? These are things that unless I deal with them, I'm not going to make it here. All of this is technique, and technique is important. Jesus is the founder and finisher of our faith. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's a very important thing to do. But there's something you need more than that. You need a little gas in your tank. You need a little energy and power. And if you'll notice that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. There is a great joy, and the joy that is set before him is not just a general kind of happiness and comfort. The joy set before him was more than that. And I asked the question, what was Jesus' joy? Why did Jesus run the race? Well, you good theologians would say he does it for the glory of God. Well, he had the glory of God. Okay, he did it to be holy. He had holiness. Why would Jesus come to earth and even get in the race? And as far as I know, there's only one answer in the book of Isaiah where it talks about the suffering servant, and it says the results of his suffering, he shall see his seed, and he shall be satisfied. What are the results of his suffering? What is the only thing that in heaven the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did not have? What is the only thing Jesus didn't have before he came to earth? Us. Us. What was Jesus' joy? It's the only thing. What, this, what that must mean is in Jesus' suffering, he was seeking us. Now he says, in your suffering, seek me. Be like me, be with me, seek to be like me. Here's what Jesus is saying. I was subject to the father of my spirit and was crushed so you could be absolutely sure in suffering that you can be subject to the father of your spirits and you will live. I lost my glory in my suffering and I just want you to give up your idols. I lost God in my suffering, but in your suffering, you're going to get God. You're going to get love. I sought you. Now in your suffering, seek me. I suffered for your sake. Now, suffer for my sake. That is the gas in the engine that causes you to stand up under 
suffering and to persevere and to endure is realizing that what his joy was, was us. Think about that. Of all the things the triune God has, the one thing that Jesus came to do was to redeem us to himself. So life is a race. There is a race marked out for us. And nobody's pathway is the same. Everybody runs a race, but it's a different race. Our focus in the race is, of course, Jesus. We're to fix our eyes upon him. He is to be our focus. And our motivation for the race is his indescribable love for us. His coming to redeem us. So, let's run the race marked out for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It is full of both agony and ecstasy. The agony of this text is that it's so realistic. It talks about life in this present age as being an agonizing struggle. And for some of us, that's more real today than anything else. But Lord, we pray that your Spirit would cause us to see the beauty and glory of Christ and to focus upon His love. And that will motivate us more than any threat, more than any ought to, more than any duty. The only thing that will melt our hearts is seeing again that we are your joy. And what you were willing to lose so that we could have joy in having you. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who have tasted and have seen that the Lord is good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.